At Marshalls, our buyers hustle to get you great deals on great gifts. Cashmere sweater, nice. You'll get brand name quality gifts for everyone on your list and yourself too. Hello, designer fragrance. More brands, more quality, more gifts for less. At Marshalls, gift the good stuff. podcast from the Geek Show Podcast Network, dealing with the good, the bad, and the downright inexplicable of movies, either featuring, starring, or by pop stars. No other podcast covers such a broad range of cinematic and musical genres, from country and western to hip-hop, from science fiction to documentaries. I, as ever, am your host, Graham Williamson, film critic for the Geek Show and Horrified, and this week I've been joined by... It's me, Mark Cunliffe. Uh, I write on Letterboxd, you can find me there, and also I write some booklets for Arrow Film. Mm. And you've been on the Talking Pictures podcast, haven't you? I have, yes. You can hear my dulcet tones on Talking Pictures as well sometimes, yeah. <laughs> Which is nice, because this is probably the most Talking Pictures-y film that we have covered to date, I would think. Definitely, yeah. Yeah. I think it's it's been on Talking Pictures as well, hasn't it, I think? It has, yes. Yeah, early... Uh, I looked on the website and I think early 2020 it was on. But uh, to introduce it properly, this week's film takes us back to the time when rock and roll arrived on these shores with an all-star cast, including David Essex, Ringo Starr, Keith Moon and Billy Fury. And if that sounds like a recipe for toe-tapping jukebox musical fun... Think again, because this is that'll be the day, the film that proves that in early 70s Britain, even the pop movies were grim as hell. <laughs> true, very true. It's a sort of kitchen sink version of Summer Holiday, really, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I hadn't thought of the Summer Holiday connection, but yeah, and there is a bit in it where... David Essex is talking to Keith Moon and he says something like, oh, you're still doing those crummy Cliff Richard covers. I wondered if that was a slight way of like throwing people off the scent that this is basically just Ken Loach's summer holiday. (laughs) I'd have definitely watched Ken Loach's summer (laughs) holiday. (laughs) (laughs) The bus would be decommissioned by some. Yes. <laughs> Some transport from the local council. <laughs> we we'll have to close down the bus shelter. <laughs> I mean, it. I, I've been working on this theory while I've been researching this show that every pop movie that is set in the past, and this is like a 1973 film set in the 1950s, it's very much a film about days gone by even for its initial audience. Every pop film set in the past ends up secretly being about the era in which it was made. And for all there is a lot of great 50s period detail and period music here, it feels very three-day week. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that, yeah. It's got that um, the party's over type attitude that a lot of early 70s films have, that Mm. sort of 
the swingy 60s was the party and this is the come down this is the hangover morning really isn't it it does have that sort of all around it definitely Yeah. yeah which is obviously something that doesn't make much sense in connection with the period it's set in because you know the party is now in the 1950s the the 50s in britain weren't the best of times but the Luftwaffe weren't bombing us every night which is a big step up you know (laughs) true true i think mcmillan said we'd never had it so good at that point as well so yeah yeah which is is a, a bit of an exaggeration but you could see where he was coming from Definitely, yeah. But as you say, the Luftwaffe were out bombing us at least, so that was something, yeah. Mm. So it's this... that cusp of before it went the wonderful technicolour of the 60s, really, isn't mm. it? Yeah. So I guess there is there's some relevance to it being a bit downbeat mm. because we've, we've yet to wake up to those technicolour vistas. Yeah. But, um, it's, yeah, it is more speaking of the 70s at that point, I think. It starts in... A, a very odd kind of impressionistic pre credit sequence where you see the hero, uh, Jim McLean, who will grow up to be played by David Essex. He's abandoned by his father. And it, it, I couldn't quite put my finger on how this was shown. It's quite hard to describe, I thought. Yeah, it's, it is expressionistic, isn't it? It's mm. very... Um... It's interestingly done. Um, yeah, it's a weird kind of... It's like you're privy to somebody's half-remembered half memories. Almost, yeah. yeah, it's all like sort of brown shadows and whispery bits of voiceover, little clips of the, the incident happening rather than seeing it properly. You know what it reminds me of, actually, a bit of... Remember Life on Mars? Yeah. Uh, Theories when he would get those flashbacks to um, his own father having to yeah. leave um, because he's obviously you know whatever happened in Manchester in the seventies he had to leave and he's piecing those memories together it did remind me a little bit of that yeah that's a good point whether I, that was a an echo conscious. whether they were, yeah they were working to um, prove that point or not I don't know. It seems it seems quite possible that they would have watched this as a sort of study of seventies attitudes because, like, like I say, even though it is set in the fifties, it's incredibly seventies. It's so it moves on from there to Jim at school, and I, I quite like this beat because he's he's shown as a kid who is very disobedient and very bored. But it's not just rebelliousness. He is actually a gifted child who is understimulated by his lessons. That's right. Yeah, he's very bright, isn't he? But it's mm. um, it's just not bright in the way that the the whole package system of British education would. He's not fitting any of the uh, the boxes as to what is supposed to constitute as mm. a good pupil. Uh, yeah, that's true. I think a lot of it was based on um, John Lennon. John mm. Lennon's childhood and Brian Jones's childhood as well, I believe. So it's sort of mixing the palettes together there to create what mm. would become this rock star. Yeah. I hadn't heard of the Jones thing. I, I must admit, I don't know that many biographical details about the Stones compared to what I know about the Beatles, but yeah. the, the Lennon stuff is definitely in it. Um, I must say... When I compare this to something like Sam Taylor Johnson's Nowhere Boy, which is, 
I guess in some ways a less interesting film, although I do like it a lot. Um, well, my friend, uh, I've name-checked Caroline Champion, who's also on Letterbox. She always says, it's a bad idea to give John Lennon a six-pack. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Once she saw that, that was out the picture for her at that point. <laughs> and I, I completely get that. I read someone around the time of release says, this feels like the John Lennon story as directed by Yoko Ono. You know, it's incredibly <laughs> adoring. If you didn't yeah. know that the director and the lead actor married soon afterwards, you would guess it from the film. You would have a rough idea. Yeah, mm. that's true. Yeah. The the um, the Brian Jones stuff. The, I suppose it follows on from how um, I'm trying to think of a good word for Randy, but there isn't really how Randy Jim becomes. It's almost like <laughs> Timmy Lee at some point, isn't it, from the Confessions movies? <laughs> we, uh, we're yeah, simpatico on this because I, in my notes, I have written thinking about that kitchen sink drama thing that you pointed out earlier. I've written he's not much of an angry young man, but he is definitely a randy young man. <laughs> he really is, yeah. yeah. That reminds me of the. Uh, it's, it's definitely the Brian Jones angle because although. Mm. I'm not saying that John Lennon wasn't Randy, but it's definitely uh, as we've the seen Jones from thing. Sam Taylor Johnson, he was a chiselled shagger par extraordinaire. That six pack, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I believe um, I believe Brian Jones had five illegitimate kids by the time That's... he was in his twenties, and weirdly, two of them were called Julian. Really? <laughs> yeah. Wow! I guess it Very makes stupid. it easier to remember the names. Must have been sniggering up his sleeve at that, that, you know, mm. two women both came to the same sort of decision to name the child Julian without knowing each other. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's sort of, it's sort of a rise and fall story, except in this movie, it doesn't quite get to the rise. That's right, yeah. There is a sequel, Stardust, which we're hoping to cover as a Patreon episode later, which does get into the sort of Jim as rock star years. But this ends very tentatively with him buying a guitar. And it is almost like watching one of those films like Nowhere Boy or England is Mine, but about a rock star that doesn't exist. Very true. Yeah, and parts of England is mine. Yeah, we think that's very much the same pattern, isn't it? Mm. But the idea, of course, is that we know that that boy is going to grow up to be Morrissey, whereas yeah. this character is fictional. We don't know what he's going to grow up to be. Uh, it could have very easily been like, that's it, we never hear of Jim McLean again. Almost like we are the best, I suppose. We know that they're yeah. not going to be the, great, the greatest punk rock group ever, but we've had fun watching them and they've yeah. had fun living that life. Um, mm. But yeah, I remember when I first watched it, God, going back quite a few years now. Mm. Um, I was surprised that I was sat waiting, thinking, well, there's, there's another half hour left yet. He's got to get famous, hasn't he? And then you get to the <laughs> end, and you realise, no, he's not at all, actually. Yeah. <laughs> so it came as a bit of a surprise, yeah. And the film would still, I think, have worked had it not done well enough to have a sequel and had Stardust not been made. I think it still, it still would have satisfied as just a film about a young man discovering rock and roll. I think maybe the reason why people think it, it is going to be that kind of movie is because just so after it was released and partly as a consequence of it being released, David Essex became very, very famous indeed. Yeah, very big, very quickly, yeah. yeah. And that, I, I 
didn't know much about David Essex's career before I started researching this episode. So I was surprised to see that basically everything you know from his career, rock on, you know, the musical roles, everything follows on from this. It's a remarkable stroke of luck, isn't it, to cast as an aspiring rock star, someone who is in fact just about to become a rock star. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. I know he's never really looked back after that point, really. Has he? He's still a perennial mm -hmm. favourite, even to this day. In fact, <laughs> I've got to embarrass myself here. I've got my uh, my copy of both uh, ah, Happy yes. Day and Stardust there. Mm -hmm. um, but inside it, as I was looking at this recently, is a ticket to see David Essex. Ah! I was that soldier. I have been to see him at um, Southport Theatre way back in 2006. Actual <laughs> memorabilia there. <laughs> Southport, where they don't bury their dead, they put them on the park benches. <laughs> <laughs> and there's quite a few of them in the theatre that night as well, I think. <laughs> but yeah, he's still got a huge sort of fan following, you know, I remember queuing up outside, you know, going into the theatre and there's all these sort of like middle-aged women all really mm -hmm. desperate to see David Essex and you got the feeling that they went every year without fail. <laughs> yeah. I think maybe one of the reasons why I hadn't investigated his work before is because when I think of the 70s, I think of it as an eva of absolutely unparalleled musical development. I think of punk, of disco, of funk, of hip hop, of prog, of kraut rock, of, you know, so many genres. Basically, every genre we listen to today can trace some part of its ancestry back to something that happened in the 70s. Whereas David Essex was part of the other 70s that was more interested in the past was more retro focused and I guess when I think of stuff to listen to from that either I don't instinctively think I'd like a bit of 70s rockabilly you know <laughs> yeah it's that weird mix of um teeny bopper mm. and uh did they call them glitter teds or the ted revival they were sort of like that sort of Gary Glitter, Alvin Stardusty type. Um, yeah, yeah. Weird revival where Quiffs were suddenly back in again and big bother boots and uh, Victoria Edwardian suits. Yeah. I think part of the reason, maybe why it's fallen from favour, is you know Glitter's own disgrace because the maddening thing is, thanks to the brilliant Mike Leander, he had the best singles back catalogue of anyone in that scene. And yeah. now it's all been kind of irretrievably tainted. It's so true. I remember watching Joker last year and coming out of the, uh, the cinema <laughs> with um, Rock and Roll Part 2, just bouncing around in my head. But you feel slightly guilty to have it in your yes. head. Yeah. That's why I always say, but it is a banging tune. Though. It is. <laughs> I, I'd forgotten that. I'd forgotten how weird it sounds, like the guitar is genuinely atonal at certain points. And to have that with a big heavy beat and get it in the pop charts is staggering. If, you know, I guess if you feel guilty for enjoying it, just remember that all Gabby Glitter did was turn up and go, hey! <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's not it's like... Actually, yeah, yeah. And we're dangerously, ridiculously high platform boots. Yes. And 
his mum's bake-off oil. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're not talking about Brian Wilson here. He's not the creative powerhouse behind it all. No, that's true. <laughs> but yeah, uh, back to David Essex. I, I think he is still kind of a bit green as an actor in here. He has this sort of tick of stretching out the last word of every sentence, which I thought was a bit weird. <laughs> but... <laughs> True. But, but he's done bit parts and stuff, hasn't he? It's yeah. Sort of, I think he pops up in a few... Um, oh, the guy does... Is it Gerald Thomas and Peter Rogers who did the Carry On films? They sort yes, of branched yeah. out to do the odd thriller and he pops up in a couple of those, I think. Mm-hmm. Just sort of like just walk on is near enough. Very small minor roles. So he, he had his eye on acting, I think, but... Mm. It wasn't really his metier at that point, definitely. He has this quality where you can see he's obviously becoming to be a, going to be a star, but no one had really worked out how that was going to happen yet. Yeah, yeah. Which I think may, makes him good casting as Jim, because Jim obviously has the exact same problem. That's right. He's, he's very much a blank, a blank slate, really, for mm. other people to put to put stuff on, and he, he he's almost like a sponge as well in the film. Yeah. Certainly with the characters around him, with um, Ringo Starr's character, he sort of like just learns from him, adapt, you know, adapts his way of life, and then discards him later on. So it's like yeah. he's just he's just taking in whatever he can of the world around him, really. I feel that people who have not watched this movie, um, certainly this was the bit that caught me unawares when I, I watched it for the first time recently. Um, the thing they may be most unprepared for is Pervy Ringo Star. <laughs> He's not the sweet big nosed boy from the Beatles films, is he? He is not, no. <laughs> I would say if you've asked me to list the top 10 things I was not expecting to see, and that'll be the day, somewhere in between King Ghidorah attacks and early cameo from Nicolas Cage, I would probably have put Ringo Starr's bare ass in there. <laughs> Nobody needed to see that, really. <laughs> no. not, even, not even Barbara Back needs to see that. <laughs> <laughs> Mrs. Ringo Starr, if anybody doesn't know that. <laughs> I... Uh, I thought about it for a worrying amount of time afterwards. I thought, did he have a double? Does he actually have that tattoo? I don't... Maybe some things yeah. man was not yeah. meant to pry into. Well, the, the unknown trivia of that scene is he actually asked George Harrison to be his Did he? <laughs> oh, I really wanted that to be true. <laughs> or maybe... No, it would be funny if he'd asked Pete Best to be his butt double one day. <laughs> Not even the best bum in the Beatles, I'd have said, but uh, you've you've ruined that joke for me. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah, he meets, he, we should set up who, who Ringo Starr is, his character yeah, yeah. Mike. Yeah. Because um, he meets him when he's employed at a fairground. And he's the kind of, I don't know what you'd call him, an entry into the way of the lad, I guess. Yeah, he's, um, he's one of life's rogues, isn't he? He's, mm. a, he's a Jack the Lad just drifting from town to town, really, isn't he? I suppose yeah. it's just whatever small little job that he can get his hands on, he'll do to get a bit of money in his pocket and uh, just take a girl out that evening, you know? Yeah, yeah. 
there's a great line where he's talking about um, when he was at sea and he think, oh, there's some sort of naval experience behind it, but it was like just the ferry across the Mersey that he was working on. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Such a wonderfully scouse line. I know. On the ferry, like, you know. <laughs> yeah, it, it, was, uh, it was written by Ray Connolly, who seems to have a yes. similar kind of ear for working class dialogue as a lot of that kind of play for today generation had. Um, I do think it's a really impressive script. It's a shame that Connolly seems to me to be best known for these uh, Jim McLean films. I do wish he'd got more of a shot at it because he is really good. He's a good writer, yeah, and I think he did get recognition eventually for Stardust. I think he won the BAFTA for best screenplay for that. Mm. Um, so it wasn't like he was sort of like a one-hit wonder who just disappeared. It's, mm. um, he did get recognition for what he did, but it's not a name that people would really know now, I don't suppose. Yeah, I, I, it might just be one of those things where he came about 10 years earlier and he'd been in that generation with Sheila Delaney and all the other early kitchen sink writers. People would celebrate him a lot more, but yeah, yeah not so much at the moment. Uh, it's a very stacked cast, isn't it? Very much so, yeah. yeah. I mean, you've got... Um... Ringo Starr, Billy Fury, uh, Keith Moon. <laughs> who was, a, 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 try and contain your shock, who was apparently quite drunk on set. <gasps> Never. That's his squeaky clean image gone. <laughs> Do you know what always strikes me as well is how utterly shagged out those three actually look. You know, when you think, <laughs> they're not that, they're not old men. It's Ringo Starr, Billy Fury and Keith Moon. All right. Moon, you kind of expect, but at 27, he's mm. only a year older than David Essex. Yes, yeah. <laughs> and he looks about 20 years older than David Essex in this film. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and then you've got Ringo and Billy Fury, you know, two scousers, and they're both, I think they're about 33 at that point. But they really yeah. don't look 33. It's, yeah, the... You can tell the difference between David Essex, who has just lived for the past decade, and Ringo Starr and Billy Fury, who have lived as rock stars for the past decade. Yeah. And my yeah. God, the difference shows. Yeah, I mean, it helps that uh, Mike is supposed to be older than Jim. So mm. that sort of sells it. But I don't think 33 is the, is the age bracket we're supposed to expect Mike to be in at that point. No. And certainly not 33 looking 43. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a good performance. It reminded me that when I saw The Hard Day's Night, I really felt that Ringo Starr was the best actor out of the big yeah, songs. And Absolutely, yeah. 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 He, he, he steals the film, really. It's a, mm. and it's a shame that when you take it as a whole, although he's a very impact, impactful part in the film, mm. his actual screen time isn't that that long, really. I mean, once he's out the picture, he's out the picture. Yeah. And I'm missing being around after that. And it goes in an odd direction after that, because... On one level, like you, I did miss the kind of energy of the fairground scenes and the humour that was that emerged in it. But I do also think there's an interesting point here, which I've never seen in a movie like this before, where 
Jim initially thinks that all of his dreams of escape have, have crumbled and he has to go home and be known as that guy who tried to make it and almost had it yeah yeah and again Which... it's trying to fit back into that you know it's a square peg in a round hole again isn't it he's yeah he's got to try and adapt to you know a life that he thought was he'd walked away from completely and he looks for a time. It looks like he is actually going to just settle into that routine again. Mm, yeah, not happily, but you could imagine he's the guy who sits in the pub, sort of saying, "I could have been somebody." And, yeah, you know, <laughs> never happened for him. Yes, I mean, th there's a wonderful line in it when he's talking to his mum, and his mum berates him for wasting his intelligence, and she says, "You could have gone to art college." And I thought, "Oh yeah, there's never been a band started from art college, has there?" <laughs> Again, it's the Lennon influence that I suppose, isn't it? Yeah. Who's the only plays his mum? I should know that name, but she's brilliant. She's in. She is brilliant. Loads let of me, things. Let me just. Rosemary talk. something, I think. Yeah. Rosemary Leach. That's, it is. Yeah. yeah. She was. Um, she was the kind of person who would appear in my mum's type of programs in the eighties. You know, yeah. that sort of matronly type, matriarchal figure. That uh, she did a lot of um, wholesome, homegrown sort of dramas at that time of the odd sitcom. I think as well. Yeah. I she's think very good in this. She's she she good. is very good in this, yeah. And I think it's a role that could have been two-dimensional that she invests with quite a lot because when you look back at the rock and roll movies that were being made around the time that this was set back in the 50s, yeah. the parents are only there to be an obstacle. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Very much so. I mean, there's a, there's a good film, um, well, good film, let's say. <laughs> <laughs> from around that, from from the the uh, early sixties, I think. Uh, what a crazy world with Joe Brown. Right. And, uh, <laughs> what a crazy world with Joe Brown and um, Marty Wilde. And uh, who is it? Marty Wilde is also in Stardust. Stardust, well, yeah. Because yeah. I, I remember thinking when I was watching this, the only. 50s British rock star who isn't in this is Marty Wilde and then he pops up in the sequel in the sequel yeah yeah <laughs> true but yeah that what a crazy world is an interesting one because that's almost like a kitchen sink musical right it's nicely starkly shot in black and white um there's an opening sequence with Marty Wilde where it's best described as Brexit the musical <laughs> and, uh, in the sense that they go down to the local labor exchange and then get a cob on I don't know if that does that does the phrase get a cob on translate outside of St. Helens? I don't know. I think uh, just get get a bit pissed off. I, I was gonna say I know what it means, but I think our <laughs> listeners should try and work out what it means from context. And... I'll do that next time. <laughs> but yeah, they get they get rather miffed, shall we say, that um there's a lot of immigrants in the labour exchange. Yeah. And then do this whole musical about how their labour exchange is going down the pan now because they're letting too many people in. <laughs> like the original version of Get Back, isn't it? <laughs> True enough, yeah. But the parents in, in that, Joe Brown's parents in it, is um, Harry H. Corbett from mm. Septo. And uh, I can't remember the lady's name now. But 
the the sort of relationship is very much like oh bloody kids bloody yeah. kids which all was all those parents were ever required to do in those films really yeah you know you get a big name well not a big name but a popular name like harry h corbett who's yeah huge on television talented guy great very timing. Talented. supposed yeah. to be the uh the british brando wasn't he as well yeah before, um, before steptoe came along yeah but he's reduced to basically playing steptoe if steptoe had a, a teenage son who was in a skiffle <laughs> band you know so he's got the he's got the vest on and the knotted scarf but he's going bleeding kids you know <laughs> but i just find it odd that you know he's playing in a joe brown film whereas his dad wilfred brambo gets to star with the beatles yeah well that's that's paying your dues isn't it when Definitely. you're on your way up you're in the joe brown movie when you reach the top you're in the beatles one Definitely. <laughs> Uh, I just before we move on from the cast, I do want to say I really love Billy Fury in this and his performance as Stormy Tempest, which I think was that porn star Donald Trump paid hush money to. Um, is, <laughs> it's great. I think you're right. Yeah. <laughs> it reminded me of you know that bit in Repo Man where Otto watches that terrible lounge act on stage and he goes, oh, I can't believe I liked these guys. And it's yeah. the, the circle jerks, the actual circle jerks in gold yeah. lame suits doing this chintzy kind of crappy version of one of their songs. Billy Fury in this reminded me a lot of that circle jerks cameo. Very much, yeah. And it's it's quite uh it's a, it, it's a sort of decision to take that role shows no no errors about who he is no fantasy you know, at all sort of, yeah yeah he's happy to send up the idea that i mean i guarantee billy fury was probably the type of jim mclean who was laughing at the would-be rock stars in the holiday camps of the day really yeah so to then to just sort of like adopt that person's skin and mm. know that he's opposite fellow scouts who effectively stole his thunder yeah you know, in, in Ringo Starr is um it, it, yeah there's no vanity whatsoever really there um and also I think that also transcends with David Essex as well like you say I mean he, he's not quite found his course but it's a big gambit to play somebody so unlikable in a movie yeah. when you're thinking I'd like to be the next teeny bopper if I may you know yeah <laughs> To try and to to win the hearts of teenage girls, but also be a bit of a bastard in a film that those teenage girls might want to beg and plead for mothers and fathers to go and watch when it's on at the Roxy or whatever. In the day. Yeah, it's, uh, it, it's quite two sided. Yeah, I do think that is impressive. I think Jim is the kind of role that team friendly pop stars tend to play when they've been big for about six or seven years and they want to show that they're not just this squeaky clean figure. Exactly. It's very weird to see that right at the start. Yeah. I say it's, it's, it's a bold gambit for both of them, really. You've got Billy Fury at the, the end of his career, although obviously, you know, he didn't know he was going to be dead in 10 years' time, but mm. he certainly didn't have the popularity that he would have enjoyed in the early 60s by the early 70s yeah. so at the end of his career he's taken on a role of somebody who never made it he's going to be just the the holiday camp crooner for life 
kind of thing until eventually he's overtaken by the next generation of never made it. Yeah. So it's a very bleak sort of role to take on. And it shows, like I say, it shows no vanity whatsoever. And then on the opposite side of it, you've got somebody who is just starting out, Mm. who's happy to take a role that is quite bleak and uncompromising as well. Because part of the story of rock and roll, I mean, all pop music, but rock and roll in particular, I think, is the story of people working out what to do when they get old. For the early years of rock and roll, it's music by and for teenagers. And once you pass about 28, you're kind of left at sea. You don't know what you're meant to be anymore as a 30-year-old rock star. And I think this does show that debate in its infancy, the first time where you can point to people like Ringo Starr and say, okay, they're obviously still famous, but what are they now? Yeah, exactly, yeah. I mean, was Ringo becoming an actor at that point? Was that his whole modus operandi, really? Was he just happy to to be the actor? Because he did do quite a few films in the 70s, didn't he? He did, yeah, yeah. And I think had some of them been better, you know, he would have got a career out of it because performance-wise, he's good. Yeah, he certainly had the chops. Mm. I think he, um, it would have been interesting because, again, I know you're hoping to talk about Stardust at a later date, but it would have been interesting to see if his his, um, apprehensions weren't there, if he would have took on the role again in Stardust because he isn't. It's it's Adam Faith, obviously, who takes the, the role. In, in yes. Stardust yeah. Because of Ringo's belief that it gets a bit too close to the bone for a, an ex Beatle. Yeah, it is. It is quite an odd direction that character goes in in general in Stardust. But like I say, we we will get on to that in the future. Yeah. The guy who interests me the most behind the scenes and largely because I can't quite work out how I feel about his contribution is Claude Watton, the director. Because mm. the idea behind him being hired, this went through a bit of a round of musical chairs when it was uh, being directed. They wanted Michael Apted, uh, who at the time was moving from doing documentaries like the Yup series to making feature films. They wanted him to direct yeah. it, but he couldn't make it. He'd just done um, Triple Echo, hadn't he? Which, yes. Um, interestingly, David Bowie uh, auditioned for. Did he? So in a, in a parallel universe, we could be sat here talking about David Bowie. Yeah. <laughs> in Triple Echo. <laughs> <laughs> that, is, that is weird. Um, yeah. So yeah, uh, David Putnam, the producer who uh, obviously went on to this glittering career, but now was right at the start of his production career. He contacted Claude Watton because he'd seen a TV movie version he'd made of Laurie Lee's Cider with Rosie. And he thought this guy has killer sense of period detail. And Putnam in particular was interested by the fact that Watton didn't like rock and roll. He thought, well, I like it and Ray Connolly likes it, but maybe we need a counterweight. And my argument is maybe you do, but I don't think the director's chair is the right place for that. Yeah, yeah. I think, it, I think Putnam's on the money regarding what Watton brings 
in terms of period detail. So mm. I think it's very good at capturing that sort of Dura post-war um, attitudes of, of uh, suburban life. There's, yeah, there is a lot of fashion still straggling on, and yeah, yeah. There's that. It's almost like proto Coronation Street, you know, some of those mm-hmm. yeah early scenes. Uh, it, it is very. It's got that kind of feeling of nine to five drudgery of just this is what there must be something more to life. You can see why a character like Jim would would look out for something more from that. Mm. So he's very good at doing that period detail. But yeah, he is kind of lost when it comes to understanding rock and roll. There's two sequences fairly early on that I think illustrate Wasm's strengths and weaknesses. The bit where Jim is led into that miserable flat that's the first place he stays away from home and mm. Wasm is really excited by all of that and there's a big gorgeous gimbal shot that captures every like brown gooey, ash-sodden surface of it, which is great. It can be a very brown film, this, can't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because Britain in general just went through its brown phase. It's like Picasso. (laughs) It just... (laughs) So that's great. And that sort of stuff really lights the fire under Watton. But by contrast, I, I remember when Jim first goes to the fairground, and it's like, it's the dead. It's the least exciting yeah. fairground in movie history. It doesn't capture anything of, of, of what you're supposed to experience in the fur. Yeah. It? That, that over-simulated uh, carnival atmosphere mm. of uh, bright lights and the smells and the, the pitch black beyond, you know. Mm. None of that is there. It's just more more brown, really. Isn't yeah. It? Like a film shot on Bisto. <laughs> <laughs> and I was comparing it to, to I mean, maybe my favourite fairground scene is the one at the start of Ken Russell's film, Pop Goes the Easel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really exciting. And that's kind of an interesting film because I always thought that felt like a pop movie without the pop stars. It's got pop artists instead, but it has all of the energy of one of those early rock and roll movies just yeah, without definitely. being about rock and roll. Yeah, they're all roughly singing from the same hymn sheet out there. You, can, you get the feeling that the, the creative industry was all sort of tapping into each other's psyche at that point to create something like that. that yeah. Say it wasn't about pop music, but it had the spirit of pop music in it. Yeah. There's a sort of investment in modernity and in looking at the world and saying, oh, God, it looks like everything's changing. Right, how do we respond to that? What new forms do we have? Yeah, whereas I think with... You fast-forward, what, 15 years later when this was made and Watson has gone, let's look back at when things hadn't changed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> He's completely missed the point that we're supposed to be on the cusp of this thing that will change. It's more like, but I like the post-war aesthetic. Yeah. I think it's telling in a way that I think other than this, the two films that really stand out in his um, body of work are the original Swallows and Amazons movie Mm. and uh, the very first All Creatures Great and Small film. Oh, right, right. The very cosy... Post-war, 
you know, big old woolen blanket of a of movies, really, which I think yeah. is more his sort of uh, his scene. I think. When I looked through his directorial career, I found, I mean, firstly, he, he did have a fantastic TV career, and we shouldn't. Yeah, he's a very that. sound journeyman of, of, of TV. Mm. Yeah, he did a lot of great um, single, single, single act dramas. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, he, he was a talent, but the only other thing I could find that connected to, to music was his final film, Buddy's Song. Buddy's Song. <laughs> Which, I don't need you to say that. <laughs> what a very odd note to go out on. It's almost like somebody went, that guy who did That'll Be The Day, he'd be good for this. Yeah. Because it's, it's the 50s. But it's interesting we were saying before about um, David Essex, the way the film ends at that at the end of That'll Be The Day, you think, well, is he going to make it or isn't he? Mm, and yeah. In a way, you could almost say that Buddy's song is, is like if he hadn't made it. Roger yeah. Daltrey's sort of em- embarrassing Teddy Boy Dad could have <laughs> easily been Jim McLean. Completely. 20, 30, 40 years on. You know? Yeah. <laughs> the pot belly and the teddy boy cut and letting the wife down and disappointing the kids. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah. That is quite odd. And I wonder if there was a moment where he just took the producers off to one side and said, oh, Look, I don't actually like this stuff, you know. <laughs> it would be interesting to think what he would have thought of that. You know, as I say, it's a film to go out on as well. I think. Mm. Was he sort of like, well, I've done this before, I can do it again? Or was he like, this is all I'm going to be known for now. They're just going to give me rock music films to do. <laughs> I can sort of see the appeal of it because a lot of these 50s or 50s set rock movies are basically solid little melodramas. You know, when you're dealing with rockabilly, for all it is an incredibly vital musical force and it was incredibly exciting when it came out, but no one's going to ask you to make performance about rockabilly. You know, you make solid little meat and potatoes dramas about fathers and sons and that fits the music. Yeah, pretty much, yeah. You've got that that whole um, butting heads energy between... You know, I fought in a war for this. Yeah, this is what you're doing with your freedom. You know that those two things butt heads, and one goes off and gets a guitar, and the other one just goes bloody kids again. You know, <laughs> yeah, it's Corbett line. But I do wonder if they sort of went with Buddy's song. If they sort of went, well, Claude often did a good job of getting David Essex out there. Mm. We've got this kid called Chesney Hawks. Yeah. He wants to be a, a music star. Perhaps Claude Bottom can do the, the business again for him. You know, it makes it makes a great degree of sense. It, I remember I would have been about seven or eight when Buddy's song came about, and it's only looking back that I realise how odd that kind of mass star making effort around Chesney Hawks was now. Nowadays, if you, if you launch a pop star with their own movie, people can smell that. You know, there's something yeah. desperate and weird about yeah. it. Definitely. But again, I suppose it's that the British film industry in the 80s and the early 90s, not really knowing what to do with itself, being a bit mm-hmm. in the doldrums. And their idea that what was a hit 20 years ago, what worked 20 years ago, might just work again now. 
yeah you know, completely define the define the whole laws of the market around them yes. you know, just say, well, it worked 20 years ago why can't it work now <laughs> yeah maybe maybe claude Wattam should just be grateful his final film wasn't carry on columbus i guess from that perspective definitely definitely <laughs> So, uh, just a couple of final little observations that I made. Uh, there is a fantastic moment where Jim meets his old school friend Terry and shouts, hey, where's the revolution, Fidel? Uh, yeah. Which, in retrospect, a fascinating moment, because Terry, Terry is Robert Lindsay, who was, before he did Citizen Smith, and David Essex went on to originate the role of Che, Che Guevara in Evita. Of course, yes, yeah, and thought of that, yeah, yeah, mm. that's true, yeah, yeah. Um, Robert Lindsay being the only um, prematurely balding schoolboy in history. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Why has Robert Lindsay always been slightly balding since about 1973 as well? He's never gone bald, he's just always slightly balding. <laughs> It's just some people find their level and they just stick to it, stick I guess. It, yeah. yeah, he's found a, a, a level of baldness that works for him. That he's happy with, yeah, yeah. But it is very strange to see Robert Lindsay playing a schoolboy. Yeah. And a very preppy, because uh, he's, he's the opposite, isn't he? He's the beatnik. Yeah. Isn't he? If, 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 um, if Jim's going full rockabilly with mm. the check shirts and what have you, and the jeans and the uh, the chatting the girls up on the uh, the merry-go-rounds and that. yeah, uh, Robert Lindsay is down in the jazz cellars uh, <laughs> buying buying skittle albums and wearing duffel coats with band the bomb badges on. <laughs> Shit, Robert Lindsay's me, isn't he? <laughs> <laughs> Never pictured you as a, as a jazz head, but yeah, you're like the rest is worryingly close. <laughs> Not so much the jazz. Maybe a bit of the folky skiffle side of it, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, maybe if he was like <laughs> if he was listening to the young thanks, maybe that would be the point at which he thought is is my TV now a mirror. <laughs> <laughs> that is a strange bit. I don't yeah, I think he he wasn't really very known at the time either, was he, Robert Lindsay? So that's um no, I'd, I'd an early role for him, isn't it? I'd always got the impression that Citizen Smith was the thing that made his name. Although there might be something earlier that I'm forgetting. Yeah, I think he did get some in. I think. Ah, um, right. Which yeah. is the uh, the ATV. I think it was ATV sitcom about um, kids going into national service, and right. he was like, he he was the teddy boy in that. Actually. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Um, and then he got Citizen Smith off the back of that. And was replaced by Carl Howman. Right. And um, gets him in. And Carl Howman, of course, is in. This is all cyclical. Carl Howman was in um, Stardust. Later. It's so weird. Yeah. It's, it, anyone listening to these episodes without any other knowledge of the British film industry in the 70s would assume that we had about two directors and seven actors. And they just kind of did, though, really, didn't we? Well, they did, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> buggered off to America, haven't they? Yeah. The rest all went, went on the Alan Parker bus to America, didn't they? <laughs> Which seems as good a place as any to drop the cliffhanger, I think, because if, if we're looking for the definitive kid in the early 70s book us off to America movie, uh, that will be coming later in Stardust. 
but yeah. for now, that's been your lot from Pop Screen. I've been Graham. I've been Mark, unfortunately. And we'll see you all next week with another episode.